Hello and welcome to episode 200. 200 of what most people think. What the double hundred? He raises his back to the Barmy Army. He bends over. He kisses the turf. He kisses the turf. Oh, he's, he's snogging the turf. It's getting weird with the turf. Uh, welcome to the 200th episode of What Most People Think. And uh, thank you. Thank you, first up. I'll, I'll do the... Um, I mean, look, obviously this is a big deal to me. It might not be to you, but to get to 200 episodes, I'm, pr- I'm pretty proud of that. Pretty happy about that from the early days when it was once every two weeks and a bit vague and then... And then lockdown, you know, God, what a blessing that global pandemic was. It went once weekly. And uh, here we are on the 200th episode. Now, I know it is a bit late this week, but that's because I had a guest lined up, Adrian Charles. And you've got got to wait for the good people, for the big people. You know, for me, as you can imagine, a blokey bloke. Somebody like Adrian Charles has always been a bit of a a bit of a hero in broadcasting. So I'm so glad to get the chance uh, to chat to him, and that will be coming up in the show. And I'll try and keep the the opening bit a bit quicker than usual because I want to get to the chat of Adrian um, as soon as possible. Just a quick new breaking news thing today, Thursday, as I'm recording this, is the net migration figures came out, and uh, they ended up being six hundred and six thousand. And I've got to say. Whoever did the uh, expectation management in government, buy, buy that person a pint because they played a blinder, didn't they? They they sort of kept... Someone was leaking the idea that it was going to be higher, wasn't it? It's like 700 grand, 700 grand, 900,000, 900,000, 900, a million. It was like a weird auction of migration. Just and Someone else put their hand up. Two million. Uh, thank you, UKIP at the back. Um, and in the end, it's come in as 606,000. So we know that there are there are factors as to why it's higher. Is that there's uh, refugees from uh, Ukraine, refugees from uh, Hong Kong, refugees coming in from um, Sunderland. Oh, that was a cheap regionalist joke. I'm sorry, but I haven't got tour dates here. So, so what? Um, the uh, what? What was interesting? I thought was that we get the same debate in a way whenever the migration figures come up. The left sort of batten down the hatches and default to their usual safe space, which is just saying, "My immigration has enriched this country. It's enriched it's our culture. It's enriched." They just they just say the same shit over and over again, even though no one's saying they almost no one. Of course, there are you know, further right-wing people on there and extreme people that wouldn't concur with this. But almost nobody is saying that it's a bad thing to have different kinds of people around. But they keep going, don't they? We've got the foods, even fish and chips. Even What, are you going to tell me the thing about how fish and chips was a, a consequence of the working-class communities and the Jewish... I know. I know that they shared recipes. I know that the food stuff is great. Literally, nobody is denying that the food stuff is great. People are only ever really discussing the scale of it. If you look at the numbers last year of half a million, so you say over like a million people in two years, a Birmingham, just go bonk. Imagine that from outer space. It just lands like a like a like a sort of meteor that contains a new city. And it just and all those people need teachers, nurses, doctors and, and so on. It's just it's just so behind the times to keep trying to stress the benefits of immigration. Because obviously since Brexit, actually, the public have become more positive to, towards the idea of immigration. It's no longer this thing, freedom of movement, which was this unlimited in perpetuity thing, which was just something you had to have as part of being with the EU. Sort of like, you know, like with one of those TV packages, like with, with if you're getting Sky Sports, you have to have fucking Sky Badminton or channel or whatever. It, it's now something that we have control of. And then if we issue work visas, our government needs to explain why that's happening. I mean, I'm a fairly good idea why it's happening because there's a lot of people who just fucking won't go back to work. But that's another argument. And uh, and then you get, like, it puts Labour in an interesting position because they're essentially, what they want to do is criticise the government for immigration being too high. and um, But that makes them anti-immigration, which is yet another thing which doesn't play out well with the sort of progressive wing of their own party. You know, old Keir was up going, look, the government have completely lost control of immigration. So he is now finding himself... In a position where you just, well, you'd say to him, all right, well, what's your, you could be in government in a year and a half, mate. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? 200,000? 
Net immigration, that would be quite hard. 100,000 would be really difficult to achieve. So it puts both parties in a weird position. The Tories sort of have made great play of the fact that they're going to keep immigration down, but obviously secretly fucking love it. Um, and and Labour, who typically are supposed to be more open to this stuff, that are now striking a, a more hard line, a harder line. And then you get the, the, the sort of third crowd, which is the um, slightly... You know, there's probably not many people that think like this, but then you get the open borders crowd. You know, look, I just think, man, I just think, open, look, no immigration controls, just anywhere, man. Just let people go where they want. And, you know, it's fine there. You could hold that position philosophically. But what I think is interesting is they're often the people that would be least likely to be able to cope with the consequences of that being a reality, right? <laughs> the way that infrastructure and society would fucking sort of combust and creak and crumble. I mean, the people saying open borders are often the same people that are freaking the fuck out when you couldn't get tomatoes for two weeks, right? <laughs> or cucumbers or toilet roll. And now they go, yeah, man, just like, let's just all, let's just let people go where they want to go, dude. And like, you, you would not cope. You would not cope. It's, it's a bit like, it's a, I always think of it a bit like, you know, in A Few Good Men, where there's uh, Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson, I love that moment where Jack Nicholson just snaps and lays down some real-world home truths, like, there are people on fucking walls, son, and you secretly want us there. You need us there. <laughs> yeah, in that moment, I'm Jack Nicholson. I've just realised he is the monster of that film. So maybe there are philosophical questions for me. Uh, this is what most people think, a, a show which, well, increasingly, will have, you know, dips at... Labour, Tories, a lot of sides of the political debate. It's become very nuanced, you see, in 200 episodes. And along the way, we are Patreon-funded here. That's what keeps it weekly and ad-free. Uh, so a couple of new Patreons to welcome, and one of the prizes that you get for um, you know, subscribing, whether it's three, five pounds a month, ten pounds a month, or a board member at twenty pounds a month, where you'll be getting your free signed hard copy of my last book and meet and greets at my tour shows. Um is that you get your name roasted. That's one thing all patrons get. Uh, so we've got Graham Wright, who I think is a returning patron, who I think is a G Wright, G Wright, Graham Wright. Are you a middle-class guy, Graham? G Wright, call me... G Do you know what, Graham Wright? I reckon you're the guy that works in sales, but wears those Oakley specs. You know the ones that the cyclists wear, but you wear them with a suit. G Wright, that's what you wear. Suit and a fucking... La <laughs> Oakley's in a lanyard. That's you. Oh, G Wright. G Wright's here. Great salesman. And then we've also got KTB, who I think was a grime star. Who was she from the noughties? Early 2010s? KTB. Well, maybe you've moved I would I would I presume that you were more left to centre, but maybe, maybe you're a bit more nuanced yourself there, KTB. Thank you for it's always great to see when um it's always great to see when women stand their pint, you know? This is the thing with Patreon. Are you a lady? Are you listening to this? Are you modern? Well, then get the fucking beers in. Slash, join the Patreon. Uh, David Domain is our super patron who's been with us right since the beginning. And David uh, Domain has what we call Domain Talking Point. And he picks up on some items from the last episode. Um, David Domain says, Jeff, you mentioned the M60. Uh, it turns out I wasn't on the M60. I was on the M65. But... David mentions, and you've got to, got to understand that given how blokey this podcast can be, any talk of motorways and infrastructure is always going to play out well. He says, the M60 is the UK's only fully orbital motorway because the M25 has a gap at the Dartford Crossing. And it passes through, this is the M60, every borough of Greater Manchester, except Wigan. There's probably a fucking reason for that. Not mental, are they? Um, I th oh, God, a technicality there about Dartford Crossing. Why? It's still motorway, isn't it? Even if it's on an elevated section, would that mean that you would wouldn't class Spaghetti Junction as part of whatever that road that is? Controversial, controversial. So if you if you want to challenge the idea that um, the Dartford Crossing isn't part of the M25, then do email what most people think Gmail, what most people think UK at gmail.com. I don't know why that was so hard. Okay, let's do a thank you and a fuck you before we get into the chat with Adrian Charles. I just want to give a thank you to my son, right? He got a commendation, um, like a special high award for this term, uh, just, just being, a, being a good kid, you know, uh, in terms of attitude and achievement. And, and it's interesting, like, just how, how proud that makes you feel as a parent. And I'm sort of saying this in case he listens to me years to come, years to come when I'm fucking 
when I'm brown bread and he's just he's just he's just trying to find something in the podcast. Son, well done. You fucking smashed it, mate. I was so proud. And also, uh, there was a couple of things. I realized that I when they told us come along and see him get his award, I just thought it was him. This is this is a consequence of being a stand-up. Is I thought it would just be <laughs> just be him at assembly. And then I saw it was like it was two ki- two kids per class. One thing that did occur to me, and this is going back to a conversation we've had several times on this podcast with um Christopher Snowden, is um is the lack of obese kids. You know, we talk a lot about an obesity epidemic among young people. And I was looking and there must have been like 300 kids in this assembly. Maybe you could count the kids who on one hand that were in that category. And I just think that the word epidemic now has reached epidemic use where, whereby if you see a couple of examples of something or something is slightly, it's a fucking, it's an epidemic. You know what I mean? It's like... <laughs> You know, you're a middle-aged couple and you suddenly, you don't have sex as much as you used to and then suddenly you do it twice within the space of a week. You're like, fucking hell, there's an epidemic of sex. Um, the fuck you is to recent ministerial scandals. So we've had Boris, there are further allegations about um, incidents that have been investigated uh, as part of Partygate. But also before that, and I think I'm more interested in this in a way, is this thing with Suella Bravman having... Um, being clocked for speeding and then being offered a course, then asking a civil servant if she could do it one-to-one and then eventually taking the points. And I I mean, there was just this moment where Rishi Sunak, right, he was at the G7 summit. Now, it's a fairly important time for our planet, you know, in terms of global conflicts, cost of living, the environment, you know, to depending on the degree to which you prioritise that. And so he start, opens up the press conference and Chris Mason just opens up, so Prime Minister Swellen Bronfman and... And you just saw Rishi go, and he's he's got a fairly good poker face, but you could just see him thinking, for fuck's sake, for fuck's sake, I'm in a fucking G7, you're making me look like a mug in front of my new mates. And I, I think he had a point. I think he had a point. You go, is that really your first question? Prime Minister, can, is there any chance I can humiliate you in front of your new pals by talking about a really fucking parochial issue? And then, and then he passed on to, like, the ITV guy. And I think the ITV guy is sort of sensing... Because Rishi had a bit of a snippy response to the BBC guy, the ITV guy was showing a bit of journalistic uh, camaraderie, you know, as though they were dealing with Trump or something. He's going, yeah, I'm going to talk about the Suella thing. It looks... Look, I'm not saying it's not a story at all, but the degree of importance that this was given, I find it honestly bizarre. And this is someone, you know, I, I was accused of throwing Suella Bravman under a bus when I went on Question Time. Not a fan of hers, you know, I've clashed with her. I just thought... I just thought it looks frivolous. What what the main thing I'm getting is that people really dislike Suella Braverman. And similar to the Boris thing is that they really dislike Boris. But I do I do wonder, right? I do wonder. You know, I think Boris Johnson was was forced out of office for legitimate reasons. He was repeatedly being sh- he repeatedly demonstrated that he was going to cause scandal and he, you know, he couldn't be trusted, right? Um, but I do think that individually, some of the scandals from this era, era really aren't going to stand the fucking test of time, are they? You, know, you think about, if you actually did a direct comparison of column inches for the invasion of Iraq versus Partygate, you know, I, I, I think we'll be surprised at how, how it comes out. And I guess to a degree in politics, the way you rub people up the wrong way is, is, is you do reap what you sow to a point. But I do think that at the point where... You know, you're talking about a home home secretary who asked a question of a civil servant and didn't actually fucking do the thing. You know what I mean? You know, they were reacting on the level as if she'd done a fucking hit and run. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like knocked over a fucking Deliveroo driver off his scooter. The kid had broken legs and then there was CCTV footage of her scrambling and running away from the scene. That was the only thing that could have justified the gravitas that was being accorded to this story. Okay, having found myself in the opposition of slightly defending Suella Bravman and to an extent Boris Johnson, let's get into the chat with the one and only, episode 200, Adrian Childs. Right, I'm delighted to welcome for the 200th episode of What Most People Think, Mr. Adrian Childs. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Did you realise it was a 200th? That's why I've gone for a marquee booking, you oh, see. marquee, come on, mate. I'm from Birmingham, so all I think is, well, somebody must have dropped out. No, no, oh. if you if you think about the name of the podcast, what most people think, this is, 
You probably somewhere back in the nineties when you started your broadcasting career, you probably put this seed in my head of talk of talking in a way that everyday people understand. Well, that's that's very flattering. I mean, when you asked me to do this, I could hardly say no. The amount of times I've dragged you onto my program, so uh, it's um, yeah. If 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 I can be anything like as uh, serviceable as you are on the uh, on the radio and illuminating and all the rest of it, then uh, yes, then fire away, mate. Well, one thing I wanted to talk about straight out of the gate is, is obviously you've had a long and distinguished broadcasting career, but your your articles recently for The Guardian got a lot of love, right? And 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 and, and I would say that the love of them tends to come from two places, right? There's one of them is a sort of hipsterish sort of love where they're going, oh, it's so... It's so funny that he talks about these everyday things and he's talking about he's talking about how much he hates sand and all this sort of stuff, <laughs> which I sort of think is, you know, like when middle class people go to the darts, you go, you don't yeah. really. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you love it, but I'm not sure you love the darts. Whereas. Oh, uh, yeah, that's that's great. Yes, I yes, I hadn't thought of it like that. I mean, I got into I was interviewed by GQ in America and the woman. She 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 referred to what you're talking about as um lightly ironic praise, which I thought I don't quite know what it means, but I'll settle for that. So I don't know whether they're outright taking the piss or what. And I, I sort of I just sort of flinch and hide from it. So I don't really read much of it because though I'm on Twitter, I don't tw- I've never I've never tweeted or twatted or whatever the past participle is. <laughs> but I um, I don't seem to come up on my own timeline much. So, you know, so I, I don't really know what's being said. But look, if anyone reads anything, then I'm, I'm just pathetically grateful. Well, I think it's interesting because there's a certain cynicism whereby people sort of think, oh, he's kind of working and, you know, is he is he working an angle and stuff? Whereas, whereas I've always taken it and I think that the broader audience, of, of the majority of audience that read you, to just go, no, this is, I think, what... what what agitates you, motivates you. And I guess you've just got a radar where you come from a place where you go, I know that this is what real people get wound up about too. You know, I don't, yeah. Well, sometimes they won't know sort of, you know, they, I tend to be curious about a lot of things and sometimes people might not share that. But, you know, I don't know when I've got that kind of antenna. I mean, the ideas come from absolute desperation. You know, I just, you know, I just don't know what I'm going to write about. And the thing, right, I'm kind of write about anything, but that makes it harder. You know, if I had a, you know, if I had to do a weekly column about beer mats, that'd be easier. I'd find a beer mat related story yeah. every every week. But when it's almost paralysis of choice, when you can write about anything, it's quite difficult to sort of narrow it down. And it's, you know, it's. I mean, anyone can write one column. But it's like a thousand words a week. I've done about two hundred now. You know, it's just, you know, just thank God when I just something, something emerges on a Wednesday morning when I've got to get it in. I mean, there is that. I wonder sometimes as well whether the joy of the articles after we've had a period of what I call big news. It's been for you know, particularly with Brexit and COVID. It was just so obvious what the big thing was, and then everyone probably went through the the process of picking a team and getting very agitated about one point of view. And then I think most people are in a post-culture war stage now. We're sort of realising it's all a bit bollocks. And actually, it's the small things that you can change. You know, it's the small things that are... It's the small things that that are big, in a sense. Yes, I think think that's true. Although I think during lockdown, actually, we, we had no choice but to celebrate the small stuff. Or if not to celebrate it, involve ourselves with the small stuff because we couldn't leave home. So I think people became more mindful just going outside and seeing a tree, you know, or <laughs> baking or something. So I think there was life breathed into the mundane. I, I do nothing but grumble and moan in my real life. So it's quite odd that I should come out of things sort of sounding quite positive in the in the column. But maybe you're just picking a different culture war, except it's about sand. You know, I mean, maybe, that... <laughs> maybe, maybe exactly that. It's, I mean, it's just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's difficult to know whether you're actually, it's difficult to know whether you, you actually are hitting the mark. I mean, somebody might think, you know, what on earth, what on earth is he going on about here? But, you know, they, 
you know, if, if just one person says to me, oh, you know, I've always hated sand, that's good enough for me. Well, you know? I mean, that is, if you, if you look in your family, that's what I always, you know, judge my most immediate circles, like what really agitates people. And it is, it is those things, really. Like, one of the things I've been conscious, become conscious of recently is that the, the generation above me basically think that the area outside their house is theirs legally like you know so when people park outside their house and I don't mean like on a driveway I mean just outside their house on the bit of road outside the fury and the level of obsession that people can enter enter into I remember like the, the the train station near where I lived there was a guy that had basically evidently printed off loads of laminated things with his heartfelt appeal so every time somebody parked just outside his house, his heart, his appeal was to why people shouldn't park outside his house. And I just thought it's brilliant that that is what his life has focused on. But I guess, again, at least he can influence it in some way, right? Yeah, I think, I think there's something interesting happens with cars that the... I'm, I'm talking, I met a guy once who was doing his PhD, I think, in Newcastle University, and it was something to do with our relationship to cars and how how, how our behaviour how our behaviour changes in relation to them. And he said something. It was sort of in, in relation to road rage. It says it's something that's our sort of mobile castle. Once we get in within within our car, something very different emerges within us. And he said not so much in terms of road rage. He said, but it's something particularly psychologically significant that happens to women when they get behind the wheel. You know, mm. it's their own in a way to secure space or something. I'm probably misremembering what he said, but it just struck me. It's it struck me um, yesterday. I was interviewing uh, Sadiq Khan, who anybody living in London will know. There's this ULES, the uh, or ULES, the ultra low emission zone being expanded to Greater London is, you know, it's it's turned into a massive sort of Brexity culture warry yeah, yeah. type argument, and you know where a contested percentage of cars aren't going to, you know, aren't going to be allowed to uh, on the road without paying, you know, like 12, 15 quid a day. And this tends to be older cars and so on. And people can't stand it, you know, and I sort of, I get it, but, you know, just get, you know, get, you know, we feel strongly about cars, you know, somebody in government telling you, you have to change your car. You know, mm. it's like saying you got to, you know, but you, you have to change your children, or you've got to change your football <laughs> team. Or something. I'll yeah. do it. You know, when I'll do it when I'm when I'm good and ready. I mean, on cars, by the way, I just I just I'm not a particularly fancy car. Right? It's a BMW, but you know, it's not. You know, it's just an estate car. It's not mm. particularly fancy. And I just I I tapped just going past out of a driveway. A bit of wood was sticking out, and it just it just tapped on the front headlight. And I got out and went, oh, God, it's smashed. Anyway, so anyway, I took it to the body shop. I said, I can't go around with a smashed headlight. And it was like two grand to get it done, to get it repaired. The use itself was about 1,500 quid or something. It's absolutely bloody, it's mental. And the, and I mean, if you, put, you have to build a car from the component parts bought as spares, <laughs> you know, Ford Focus it cost a quarter of a million quid or something. I mean, it's, it's completely mad. And that's, my, that's my gripe of the day. It's not something I can write a column about. I don't. Think. I don't know, man. I know. I, I I I don't know. I think I think you're onto something. I was. I you know. It is those those things that be, become big in your life. Like I, people might think I walk around thinking about politics all the time, but. Recently, I, the the screen on my phone was cracked for a while, and I was really, and it was starting to affect like face recognition. So basically, I couldn't bank online because it didn't recognise my face. So I thought it got to that point, I had to do something about it. And um, so I took it to be fixed, and I thought it was the actual screen that was cracked. I'd completely forgotten that it was a cover screen. So when I took it to the guy, who lo- luckily was a very honest guy said to me, not only is this not going to cost you 200 quid, it's going to cost 15 quid and I can do it while you wait. I swear to God, Adrian, that was one of the keenest euphorias I felt as, oh, as, as an old, you know, as a middle-aged man. I was, I was walking on air for two days. Yes, yeah. And yes, because the, the, the smartphones have attached themselves to our, to our hearts and it's re, it was like a body part of yours was defective. 
It was mm. almost like, actually, you know, you're getting some worrying symptom and you go and get it scanned at the doctor or something and it comes back, you know, it comes back, you get the all clear. It was, it was almost that profound, isn't it? The other thing I was thinking as well, you know, like, and I've, I've got a book coming out on, on being a bloke, essentially, and what blokes care about. And my protestation is we think a lot about motorways. You know, motorways are a big thing in the, in, in the male mind, not well, exclusively. Roots, roots as well. You know, if somebody, you know, if somebody says to me on the radio, saying, where are you calling from? And I go, Market Harbour. Or I almost can't stop myself by going... Oh, yeah, Mark, how would I get there then? I can, I can literally <laughs> plan it out in my mind. I do so much driving. Yes, I know, I know I'd do that. And then I met this um, I met this sort of elite soldier within, um, you know, he was, he was a Marine, and he was telling me about his daring do's around the, around the world and stuff. Amazing, you know, amazing guy. Mm. But it was when he told me that he was commuting from Newcastle to the south coast of England three times a week by car. <laughs> oh, I'll never mind holding off, you know, 50, 50 <laughs> gorillas somewhere or, you know, single-handedly. I mean, that's the mark of a man who can, who can, who can do that journey. He's got steel because I'm already thinking that on some level that would involve the M25 every day unless you're taking such yeah. a, a big dive because his Newcastle is on the east coast of England. You can't avoid it unless you uh, then... Go across and drop down the M the M forty, and then that's a whole world of mileage. But what's your uh, what's your thoughts on motorways? Then what um, what are you what are you saying about them? Well, my, my dad um, was obsessed with them. He was obsessed with in, infrastructure, and and he, I mean, I might have mentioned this before on the podcast, but he once drove all the way around the M twenty five, like as as a kind of bucket list thing. Genuinely, oh, no, I've I've actually I've thought about doing that on my motorbike actually, not the race. <laughs> Just yeah. I think it's the kind of thing one ought to have done, really. <laughs> I mean, I'm doing a similar thing. I'm ticking off. I've got a list of every single London Underground station. Yeah. And it's on my bucket list to go to to go to every one. So, you know, some so I said the most disappointing one to actually emerge from so far that I've experienced is Pimlico. It's just there's a nothingness about where you emerge. Most London tube stations, you come out and there's, there's something in your face or you're near something of interest. Pimlico, I, and I mean, email in listeners if, if I'm missing something here, but every exit for yeah. Pimlico, it's got nothing going for it. Yeah, but I'm, I'm not going to I just want to tick them off now. So <laughs> you know, my rule is you've either got a board or you've got to be bored and exit the station or enter the station and and board the train there. So, I mean, I, found, I was actually with my dog and I was on my way back from dropping something off in southwest London and I found myself getting on the bus and, and knocking off all three Hounslow stations. <laughs> so I went to... Hang on, I'll get this right. Hounslow, I, I can't remember what they call the Hounslow West, Hounslow East, Hounslow Central, whatever. So I got the bus to Hounslow West, if that's what it's called. I can't remember then. So entered there, got got out at Hounslow Central, and then walked to Hounslow East or whatever it's called, and got on there. So I'd knocked three off my list. I thought, well, what am I doing this for? But I got to see a bit of Hounslow walking around. Mm. I just think. Don't know. I just think it's important to go to random places, and it's a way of getting there. But I've got a lot of work to do on the central line. I mean, up to Faden Boys and all that. You know, there's yeah. I do think that there's a part of the tube where you go. Is this technically the tube? Like, there's a bit of the tube that goes to Amersham, and you go. That's so far into the countryside. Yeah, yeah. To still the Elizabeth, cool. line, Elizabeth line has changed things now, and I still don't know whether to put Elizabeth lines on my list. It feels like. It's not quite a tube. It's more of a a train that that goes that that goes through London. But you know some of the names there, some of the names of the stations. For example, you know I first came to London. I must have been nine or something on a on you know with my parents for the day. Mm. And, you know you see the tube for the first time, and I mean it's just astounding. You know see a, a Piccadilly line train thundering out of the tunnel onto the platform. You know and I've been seeing the word cockfosters on the front of trains all my life. I've never been, yeah. you know, you know, and it's, and I feel the urge to go even tonight. I'm going to go, <laughs> I just get on and go to Cockfosters and Arnest Grove. 
I mean, I, it's all this stuff that I think a lot of blokes that really get gravitate towards. And there's there's a bit in the stand-up show that I'm developing where I just ask all the men in the room, all the real blokes in the room, after the count of three, to just shout out their favourite services. And it's really funny because them favourite motorway services. And like you get a really big noise and a lot of the women just literally look at their fellas and go, I just didn't know you were this person. Yeah. yeah. And what is your favourite services, incidentally? Ooh. It's interesting. I mean, I I like to get in and out of them. So I like the ones which are kind of where you don't completely leave the motorway, you know, and go oh. off the island and go yeah, off like yeah, yeah, Oxford yeah. services or the next one along is Cherwell, is it? Um, mm. So I don't like those. So it would be anyone where I can just nip off and and get back on. So uh, maybe a Warwick services. Um, so or a classic sandbatch, you know, I mean, not the prettiest looking services, but it, it uh, does I feel like... Yeah, I don't go it, on off. I mean, they're all pretty grotty. And I'm not sure about those fancy damn ones, you know, like Gloucester services. It, mm. you know, it looks like it's been built into the set of the Teletubbies under a sort of a green mound <laughs> and it's all organic food look i get that you know it's important to do that stuff but that's not what motorway services not yeah. what motorway services are for um but yes it's a memory memory i like because I, I spent a lot of time in south wales and it reminds me that i'm on the way to south wales I, I, and... that's a good point the ones that were the gateway to holiday Yes. The gateway to holiday services. I was always. I remember there was one on the way down to Kent, and they used to the um, the kiosk used to have a couple of like things that you'd buy for the beach outside the shop. Yeah. I just thought it was fucking magical that mm. like um, that you could stop yeah. and get petrol, and there would be fishing nets for sale yeah. as well. Beaconsfield is the only one that's got a pub attached to it, but yeah, I think that's right. I think the game's gone. Yeah, you know, I'm a purist. <laughs> no organic food, please. And now it's cheating. It is, it's arguably cheating having a pub. It's a bit like Australia being in Eurovision. You go, okay, I can absolutely see why you've done this, but I'm not sure it'll ever be the same. Where are you on driving etiquette? In what sense? Stuff like I wrote a column about, um, you know, when two lanes of traffic are going to end up as one. Mm. We do this thing in this country where in the in the lane of virtue everyone will, will the good <laughs> yeah, people yeah. get into that line leaving the the other lane uh empty but then some people won't join the lane of virtue they'll just go shooting down and try and nip in yes at right where the two lanes merge and i was used to be dead against them and scowl at them and maybe try and get in the way of them and not let them in but then yeah. i've since realized that the, the, the thing to do, and actually this is in the highway code to do it, is to merge like a zip, merge in turn. So yeah. use both lanes and then just sort of help each other out, you know, and go, you know, and sort of merge like that. And I found a friend in New Zealand who's from New Zealand. She said, you know, you, they have signs that say merge like a zip. And if you if you don't comply with that, you know, you try and, you know, you don't alternate. You know, so people get chased and beaten up. She said, you know, for not merging like a zipper. I thought, interesting. interesting. Well, I, I would say that if you've joined the lane of virtue, you have to stick with it. I think that having joined it for good reasons, to then back down on it and then pull out just so you can get ahead because other people are doing it, that yeah. I would say that denotes a weakness of character. If, yeah. you're, if your instinct was to go straight... I, I sort of think about fair play limits. So if there's an 800-yard delay... I sort of think, well, I was in this lane. I could see that I'm probably yeah. gonna. I'm, I'll probably do half of the traffic on the left, and then I'll start to look. I'm never a last minute guy. Never. Even though, even though I, I know it's the right thing to do. I will stick in the lane of virtue, because even though I now believe the right thing to do is to merge in turn, if there's 800 yards of queue and there's a spare lane empty, I, I just think people will hate me for going past them, even though I know I'm in the right. Yes. And I'm, I'm I'm complying with the highway code. But I don't want to be disliked by that. I mean, that's one for my shrink, I think. You know, why would I care? <laughs> I, do th I do think there's something beautiful about, which is much, you know, it's not, it's, it's unrecognised amongst drivers. I mean, it struck me one night, I was driving back down the M1, I think, I've, I've been up north somewhere. And there's a section 
between the M25 and Luton of the M1. But hmm. it's very straight and it goes down in a big long dip and then back up again. And there's about five lanes either side. And it was night, and I just saw the millions of cars. You know, you must mm. have been, there must have been five thousand cars within, you know, within my field of vision. And I just thought, you know, the level of cooperation here and everywhere in the country, all the yeah. heavy, powerful pieces of metal being driven about. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary effort by all of us for accidents so rarely happen. Well, yeah, in this country, I mean, not out of each other's way, you know, it's it's incredible. I mean, you feel these things more keenly when you're on a motorbike, when your life's on the line, you know. But I found, you know, I I found motorbiking more than driving, actually, which I I do enjoy. But motorbiking, the most mindful, soothing experience. And I was a total midlife crisis, getting a bike past my test when I was about 41. And I got a great big sort of police bike type thing. It's not a you know a mm. race, you know the the you know the the cracking your ass showing out the back and all that. It's just it's quite a sedate kind of thing. But you know, put the helmet on, and then I am utterly within my own world, hyper focused because you have to be on the yeah. road and undistracted by phone calls and listening to music, which. You know, you can't really do on a bike. I mean, there are, is a way of doing it, but I think that defeats the object, and it's just you and the road, and it becomes sort of, sort of trance-like. I mean, you're hyper-aware, mm. yet somehow, you know, somehow relaxed by it. Well, is that because is that you're all trying to find one of the six little chefs remaining? I always, <laughs> I always think of motorcyclists. You just if you if you find a little chef, you'd be damn sure there's there's a motorcyclist by it. Yes, that's that. Yeah, that's true. I and mean, a lot of them have turned into, into sort of sex shops now, haven't they? I mean, there's. Uh... Yes, well, I live on the I live on the A1, and and I get the sense that I live around mild mannered people, but there's no get away from the fact that we have the highest concentration. Of, I mean, it's a strange impulse purchase, isn't it? I think. Yeah. Sort of dual carriageway motoring. It used to be that they used to have sex shops, or randomly Indian restaurants used to exist. Yeah. But there's less of them now. But they all seem to have closed down those ones. Um, the um, what speed do you do? I mean, this is terribly anarchic. This. What speed do you do on a on a motorway? Are you a cruise control person? If the road's empty. What speed yeah. would you be doing? Well, I would never, I would never do cruise control. I, I don't. That seems to be a loss of agency on some level. But um, I probably will be at the at, right at the limit of what I'm legally allowed to do for almost all the journey. Right, because I always, <coughs> I always went. I remember about ten years ago. I used to get as close to ninety as I did, and then mm. I thought, well, this is too quick. I was, I'm just going to do eighty, which would still get you nicked. Mm. Uh, and then, actually, I got I got done for um, I done for speeding, just doing thirty four in a thirty or something in London. I did a speed awareness course, and I just thought, actually, sorry, I'm just going to do seventy. I'm just going to sit and do mm. seventy. And I, so I put it on cruise. I do, you know, I do use cruise control. So I put it on cruise control at seventy. And I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but you don't get, you know, it takes you no more time to get anywhere. And it's just taking that slight step back. It's so much more relaxing. And then I can see all my, the former me's going past 80, you know, looking at the police, looking at the bridges, anybody <laughs> yeah, on there, you know, sort of knuckles on the wheel, flashing to get out of the way. I'm sticking to 80. Let them get on with it. Just go. You know, it's just, I'm sitting at 70. I found it so much more, so much more relaxing. The joy of driving slowly. Okay, just interrupting the chat with Adrian there. Before we hype, uh, we're going to say hello to a couple more patrons. Remember, if you sign up, you get a name check on the podcast. Uh, we've got Ben Eaton. Ben Eaton, thank you very much for your patronage, sir. And can you tell me, I hope that your friends sing some sort of variation on Eaton Rifles. Oh, my God. Ben Eaton, have you ever made a trifle? The Eaton Trifle, Eaton Trifle. Come on, you've got to do it. Just for bants, as they say. Shits and giggles. I'm throwing out all the middle class uh, cliches here. Um, ben Eaton. Ben Eaton. Doesn't scan that well, does your name? Ben Eaton. <laughs> Have they ever called you that? 
That'd be a good one as well. Yeah. I should become your mate. I'll just give you loads of shit nicknames. And we've also got John Wilkins. Solid name, John Wilkins. John Wilkins sort of sounds like the name that I would, if I was just thinking of a guy, if I was writing a novel and I just had a really sort of bland character who worked in business as just a sort of vague concept in inverted commas, I just call him John Wilkins. John Wilkins stepped into the room in his grey suit with his styrofoam coffee. Yeah, John Wilkins is an 80s businessman, wouldn't he? He wouldn't even have a styrofoam coffee. He'd, be, he'd come in with a clicks. He'd have a, remember clicks? Are they still in business? Get in touch. Uh, you can advertise the show from the grave of business. Um, just a quick hype. I'm at the Edinburgh Fringe. With all the talk of the tour, I forget to mention that I'm at the Fringe. I'm up there from the something 14th to the 28th, something like that, the final two weeks. I'm going to be at the Underbelly George Square. I'm in a lovely venue, which has got air conditioning and good legroom. And I'm in that room again for the third time because I know my audience, right? I'm on at 5.20. I know what you old fuckers are like, right? You're like, 5.20, that's a good time. 5.20, you could do that. Have a bit of dinner, see another show. We could be back at the hotel room by nine. Okay, uh, let's get to the, back to the chat with Adrian Charles. You met. You said you started in '94. Mm. Um, you started in. Was it? I remember watching a show working lunch. Yeah. That was where I first yeah. saw you. And, and I suppose the first thing that stuck out to me then was that with Nick Robinson or, or someone like that. Or no, no, it was, was like, it was me and a guy called Adam Shaw, brilliant journalist. Um, yeah, we sort of co-presented. There were various people like Rory Kettling Jones, you know, very new, various news correspondents who went on to be you know, big news correspondents. And I did that for thirteen years. You know, I mean, it was a great watch. It was like it was somehow light-hearted, but it was about like news and yeah. business stuff. And immediately, I was into it. And I suppose the first thing that stuck out for me back then was your your accent. It's probably not the first time someone said it to you. It was like because it was like obviously I'd heard that accent on telly, but because it was essentially proper broadcast journalism and stuff, and it was your accent. I mean, was that obviously I've been part of like a, a diversity of class seminar with the BBC and stuff. Yeah. When that happened with you, were you a product of that or did was it just, I'm not a product, I mean, obviously, obviously you had the talents, but was there a discussion happening no, around but, that? I mean, it was then? very much, I think, no, I mean, there was, there was no move to do it at the time. I just somehow, I don't know, I just somehow blundered on. And when I found there was a, a brilliant guy who died young, the age of 61, I think Paul Gibbs, who was the editor who took a shine to me on television business programs, and he put me on air. But I mean, you know, they auditioned 50 people and he always knew he wanted me. And they, and he, in the end, I mean, he said to the then head of news, Tony Hall, who went on to be director general, he said, look, you know, Tony always say, look, he seems a nice lad, but we can't, you can't give it him to present. And Paul said, well, I'm just not doing it unless you let him on and present it. So he he sort of stuck his neck out. Um, and I don't know, I just sort of did it. But I mean, things haven't moved on that much. I mean, about every six months for 25 years, 30 years nearly, there'll be some story about accents. Mm. Um, you know, Birmingham accent, least trusted or the one they make, you, you know, that's looked down upon the most, etc. And, you know, sure enough, I will then get a call about, you know, what it's like to, how did you get on with the Birmingham accent? You know, what difference does it make? And I'm always happy to talk, but I've been doing the same interview for 30 years, which tells you its own story, that there aren't, there aren't enough, you know, there aren't enough others with really distinctive, unfashionable regional accents, you know, on there. So, you know, one, Sean, Sean Farrington from Wolverhampton, he's really good. And he's got he's got a similar accent to mine, and you know he's presenting the Today program, proper proper you know grown up broadcasting. So you know he's done it, you know, and I think you know I mean even the sound the BBC's got a big role. You just got to put people on and accept that it's going to sound odd at first. I mean even um, even Hugh doing the doing the the news with a very strong Lenecli accent, you know mm. that sounded. A, very different and a bit maybe odd at first, but now it doesn't because he's been there so long. It's like actually women football commentators who have got absolutely no, you know, got no issue with that at all. But when women first started commenting on match of the day and there was a big hoo-ha about it and everything, 
I mean, I was all in favour of it, but it was it was odd because the register was just... Yeah, it took a while to, yeah, to climb. And it, did, it was only in, during the World Cup, I remember this you know, last year, that I'll be watching a game, I thought, oh, that's a woman commentator. And I just, you know, I just hadn't noticed. I just hadn't picked up on it. So, you know, there are still some accents which are nowhere near getting on, sort of reading the news, mm. for example. You are never going to get a strong West Country accent on reading the news. You know, even look, me and you are very yeah. pro-regions, pro-whatever, but even yeah. you, you know, you've got, oh, blimey, really? You know, you, you know, yeah. but the BBC's got to break that, you know, got to break that down. You know, something like, I think, you know, the manager of sort of Bristolian, Ian Holloway, you know, through his manager, keep a very strong West Country accent. I mean, well, now when somebody with sounds like Ian Holloway, Gets on the radio, uh, you know, reading the news. Well, no, we'll yeah. get we'll no, sort of getting somewhere. I mean, Geordie, thick scouser, but but we've all got we've all got our we've all got our, our class prejudices with this. Yeah, yeah. And I did a phone in on it, and a scouser, scouser uh, texted in, and he said, "I've got a thick scouse accent. I'm very proud of it. Um, you know, he's a he was a chartered accountant or something. He was a you know he had a prop you know he was a you know he was a high end professional job." And he said, but I must admit, you know, when I get on my, you know, when I get on a on a on a flight to go on holiday from Liverpool Airport and the pilot comes mm. across, I don't want him sounding scouse like me. I want somebody who sounds, you know, responsible. All right, everybody, we're gonna be flying at 37,000 yeah. feet. Exactly. I mean, if that was from a died in the wall scouser with an accent was saying that, yeah, yeah. that, we've all got a bit of I think we've all got a bit of that. We've all got a bit of Yeah, that. yeah. No, we're all trying to push back against it. I mean, the test is, you know, you're just going, you're about to have open heart surgery. You're waiting for yeah. the anaesthetic to go in. You're lying there, and then the surgeon comes in and sees you. Right. And, you know, he opens his mouth and he sounds like Stephen Gerrard. You know, or, you know <laughs> thick scat, or, you know, or a you know, really thick, brummy accent. You know, I'll be making the incision just here. And then, you know what I mean? <laughs> you, you, you know, even I, thanks with a strong brummy, I'd... You know, oh, all right, this bloke, I, would not, I wouldn't quite think, does this bloke know what he's doing? But I'd, I'd notice. Did you, I mean, like, obviously I've done bits and pieces with the BBC and, and there is that, I don't know, there's that chippiness that I sort of bring into situations and that sense of imposter syndrome. Back in the 90s, I mean, did you have out, outright people saying stuff to you that was a bit, to use a modern word, yeah. minimising or, or offensive? I, I have, and I had since I was at... It came to university in London and people took the piss and I I just couldn't care less. I, I it just never bothered me. Now that's hmm. not to diminish, that's not to diminish the you know people who have who've who've you know who felt really offended like that and I don't know, got a chip on the shoulder and, and stuff. I mean it wasn't I particularly rated myself you know, anything. I just thought, well, why would they, you know, why would they, you know. You know, what would I care? I take the piss out of the acting and have a laugh about it, laugh at myself if you like. You know, I just don't, you know, I don't mind. And even when people were quite rude about it, you know, just thought, well, whatever. I mean, it says more about you than me. And then, and then when I went to the BBC, I honestly felt it was to my advantage because, you know, I walked in with like knuckles dragging along the floor. As soon as I opened my mouth, they thought, God, what? What's this bloke all about? I mean, expectations were so low that I had to do <laughs> relatively little to impress them. You know, I just string a sentence yeah. together. They go, oh, the lad's a genius. <laughs> I mean, he was... This exotic creature. Yeah. But, I mean, but, that's the low, but the low expectations were kind of perfect. Mm. If you can break through that, then you've got to do relatively little to get noticed. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I started feeling sorry for the posh boys, the news trainees, you know, who've been fast-tracked, who've been to Oxford or whatever... With their, you know, with speaking sort of Oxford English, and you know, I felt quite sorry for them because they seemed to have to try so much harder, you know, because of who they were and how they looked and how they sounded. You know, if they didn't sound like an economics textbook right off the bat, then everyone thought, you know, they were, they, you know, just sort of overpromoted idiots. I I I spoke to a mate because uh, I was I was on news quiz lo- last weekend, and a mate of mine I hadn't spoke to him for a while. I rang him up. And straight away, he had a pop at me for sort of, he said I was geezering it up and I sounded more Cockney this, or I'm not obviously yeah. a Cockney, but more London. And I sort of thought, I haven't listened to it back, but I sort of thought it's possible. And then I wondered about yourself with our chat coming up. 
that degree to whereby you two personalities, right? If you find yourself somewhere like the BBC, you either assimilate a bit and, and your register switches or you sort of double down. I mean, have, have you found that you sort of like, has I, it been I've a conscious been accused, thing? On occasion, I've been accused of both. Actually saying, oh, you, you're poshing up now. And yeah. also accused of, oh, you're making that up. You never used to speak like that, which just plainly isn't true. I've got a, I've got a video of me in the sixth form musical when I was playing an American in cabaret and um uh, and uh, I, I was trying to do an american accent and i still sounded like i came from stourbridge so you know i i, I know that i did <laughs> I, I i absolutely did sound like this so no i don't think but but do you think it's like to your middle class mates you'll always sound working class and to your working class mates you'll always sound a bit middle class yeah, but if not, you've but, straddled those worlds know, you'll always I, sort yes, of... I do but i don't think you know, I'll try that. I do think, in a way, I'm still wondering, hang on, have I, have I done something sort of cynical here? Have I just got lucky? Because, you know, I've actually, you, I am nothing but middle class. You know, my, you know, my dad, my dad ran a big, you know, my dad ran a you know, quite successful um, scaffolding business in Birmingham. We lived in a leafy area called Hagley, just outside, you know, 11 miles from Birmingham, which was, you know, you, you, you went there as a family like my family did. It was full of people. All my all my mates' families, they were all black country or Birmingham people who'd done good. So moved out to Hagley. That's just what you did if you came from Hans yeah, yeah. Smedic or Craigley Heath or 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 whatever. So you know, I got impeccable middle class credentials actually. I went to a state school, which but mm-hmm. again, you know, in an area like that, the comprehensive school was always going to be quite good because the intake area. Um so, so you know, in the end, I've sort of got a bit of not guilt exactly, but I think, hang on, I've had it always here. You know, I've I've had the advantages of being middle class, um, in terms of affluence and stuff. But I've also, you know, I've got this working class aura, which has helped me, helped me on my way. You know, I've, I can that that can sound a bit. I don't know. I don't know. It can sound as though. No, but I, I think I've, I've, I've had similar, but partly because my life sort of it flipped. One in the early bit of my life, it was undeniably middle class, and then there was a divorce. Everything changed. We were living on a council estate and stuff, so it was more like a series of wild status drops. And then, uh, but yeah, it's it's funny. It it goes in waves, doesn't it? I mean. I remember in the 2010s, I don't know if it was something to do with uh, Wills and Kate getting married and stuff, but it all got a bit posher again, didn't it? Like, you look at comedians like Michael McIntyre and Jack Whitehall were very successful. Yeah. The actors were like Benedict Cumberbatch, Damien Lewis, all, yeah, all very talented people. But it swung back and you thought it's interesting because I remember in the 90s, you know, you had Blur sort of down at Mile End Dog Track, you know, smoking roll-ups and whatnot. What most people think. I mean, something I want to ask you is like, Something we just covered today on the show, and it's been bothering me for a while. Is that not bothering me? But it's this thing I had in my head. It's like we're doing something about kids, kids laughing. You know, the kids on kids in Nottingham with some com- competition at primary school with Beano for doing the funniest, for coming up with the funniest joke. And it was, why didn't the maths teacher's garden grow? It said because it's got, because it had square roots, right? Okay, the sweet story. But I was saying, well, what kids laugh at isn't really jokes. You know, kids, mm. but, you know, kids do laugh, you know, in a way. You remember laughing when you were laughing, you were helpless. Sometimes when yeah, you have yeah. been laughing, but you were, you know, you were, your, your, your chest was hurting. You were, you were crying with laughter. You know, yeah, you almost needed mercy from it. Yeah, like yeah, it was a... just, you know, and that, that's fantastic feeling. And I just, do you think that, that happens less as you get older. Because I think I I can think of only two occasions in the last 10 years. You know, I've laughed a lot I've laughed mm. with you, you know, but but I can only think of a couple of occasions in the last 10 years when I've been absolutely just crying with laughter. You know, and the only time I get that feeling of exhaustion now is when I, you know, it's when after I've done a big sneeze. You know, and I'm, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you can't, your body you feel spent, it, you know, yeah. every, you know, it's a bit like, you know, that, that was the feeling I used to get after I'd exhausted myself laughing. Yeah, I mean, I, it, 
I, do you know what the worst thing is? And as a comic, you know, you'd want to say that it was something relatively cerebral, but it's always been the case for me. You know, now it's on TikTok, but it used to be you've been framed. It's just the simplest, it's the simplest form of con- comedy. I mean, there's a clip that if I want to, even now it makes me not thinking of it. Uh, it's on YouTube. And if you just put in Irish guy falls over, right? Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, and by the way, before anyone gets tense, it's not to do with his Irishness. It's it's a clip on RTE News and, and they're, sh- they're talking about how icy the streets are. And there's a guy who they clearly set up a fixed off camera. And there's a guy who sort of thought, I've seen the camera, but I'm not going to change the pace that I walk at here. I'm just going to, he sort of almost self-consciously decided to walk at quite a decisive pace. And he just goes arse over tit. And and, and it's going to sound brutal to say, but it looks a bit painful, not painful to co- enough to cause lasting injuries. But it's one of the best falls I've ever seen. And 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 I suppose it goes back to the old the oldest principles of, what is comedy? You know, the distance between what you want and what you end up with. So yeah. that's why banana skin's funny, right? Because it's like yeah. you're just walking along without a care in the world yeah. and then you're flat on your ass looking like a fucking idiot. So, I mean, I do think that you're right. It is sad that we don't do that more. I think what happens in for a lot of people, not all, but in your teenage years, that's why probably people start getting stoned as well because it will happen yeah. It will happen quite commonly there where you'll just be watching a TV programme. Um but it's almost irrational when it happens. It's almost like crying. It's the same thing where by you might cry at some really moving advert about pet insurance. Yeah, yeah. In the same way, you just laugh at something. You know, I don't know, it might be like a, a weather presenter just stumbling oddly over a word and sounding temporarily French. Yeah. You know, some yeah. people just... I mean, I'm very wet behind the ears when it comes to drug taking. I mean, the only drug I've ever taken is alcohol. You know, I've done no, you know, never done mushrooms or acid or... Cocaine once, I think, but it had no discernible effect. And I just, and I'm sick if I ever smoke, try and smoke dope. But I always, I had a friend from, a uh, friend from Birmingham, and um, he said, Oh, magic mushrooms, mate. I mean, I'll never know laughter like you'd hate. Fucking hell. You just can't stop fucking laughing. And he liked nothing better than. Having a lot of magic mushrooms on a Saturday night and watching Family Fortunes, he just said, <laughs> "The laughter is, is crippling, paralyzing." But it was stuck in my mind. I thought, "Well, I like to, you know, I'd, I'd just, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to experience that." No, I can, I can, I can understand. That. I remember I was in Amsterdam when I was about nineteen or twenty, and uh, we'd had some mushrooms. And um, David Gray had his album out. Do you remember? Do you remember the guy that sung Babylon? Yeah. Um, that's you know, and that was a big song, and he was very earnest. Uh, and and so we just so a couple of my mates took his music very seriously, but I didn't. And so as we were laying, everyone's like, "Yeah, let's just hear, hear the lyrics." And I just thought it was so pretentious. And then just with each and every song, it seems to become more earnest. And I just got the sense of this guy that was almost kind of like uh, uh, paralysed by his own emotions. And I found it so funny. So this isn't an endorsement of taking mushrooms as a way no. to laughter joy. And, and, and it's, it's key to say that in the context I took them, they were entirely legal. Yeah. But, um, but I suppose it's just that slight shift of perspective that allows you to see how fucking ridiculous something is. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I just wonder whether it's something, we, the only mode of laughter we bore with is the is the is the one that absolutely takes you over you know is the hysterical one so for example most of us i was just thinking about videos i got on my kids and most people have got kids are born in the video age the babies hmm. there'll be some video of them somewhere just laughing hysterically beside them yeah. totally random you know i've got one of my elder daughter with my mom got a little dolly going Ooh, and she she Killing herself laughing, and I just thought, well, perhaps that's the only way of laughing when you're a, when you're a baby. So you know, you never see a baby do a wry chuckle. You know, they're either no, sort of, you know, you yeah, yeah. go, <laughs> you know, don't do that, do they? I mean, they. Well, I, I wonder if it's because the the very state of being a child, it's almost like being a bit stoned. 
There's just stuff coming out from left of centre. Nothing seems to make full sense. I mean, it is, it is uh, you know, as we come to the end of our chat, we've just mentioned drinking. Of course, I wanted to talk to you yeah. um, about the book. I mean, it's an exception. I mean, in very, I mean, and I mean, this, like, it's a very you thing to do is write a book that's not saying I found a, a complete answer to everything. Yeah, yeah. But I've written a book about what if you just drank a bit less, which again, yeah. I think is prime what most people think territory. Yeah, that's what most yeah. people are in the market for. But, you know, we exist in the, you know, in so many times I thought it's only the extreme view that it's only the extreme views that get on. We, we you know, we need this binary kind of thing. So, I mean, even now, people who read the book, we get the mess, you know, got the message. I do interviews about it, you know, it's still in their minds. You're either uh, what they would call alcoholic or you mm. don't drink at all. People struggle to compute the, the you know, the, you know, the, the, this notion of, moderation you know it's just too it's just too dull otherwise you know it's like sometimes i'm asked to go in fact they don't ask anymore tellingly and they you know i get asked to go on they say gmb or something or or something to have to this you know have a discussion about something so they'll say you know what's your view on um dogs off leads or something you know in parks so I'd say, well, you know, my natural thing, well, and I can't see it both ways. I go, oh, the, well, you know, mm. you've got the doggy, blah, 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 blah. And they go, nah, that's no good. They're like, they want you to come, do you know good? To, yeah, no, yeah. To be nuanced. You, you know, you don't get this as a, as a producer. You know, I don't want someone coming on my show. Well, I don't see it both ways. You want somebody goes, I want all leaves abolished. No dog should ever be on a leaf. And the other one say, no dog should ever be off a leaf. And have a big thing on, you know, but in the, you know, the, the truth is always in the middle somewhere, and most yeah, all, all leads abolished. Maybe that, maybe that's the next book. Yeah. is the, the 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 sort of the sort of cancer of polarized opinions. <laughs> and I think that I think it's such a good place to be because the, most people aren't in the market to stop drinking completely. I mean, most people just mostly drink all right. They'll have one or two occasions where I think overdid it there. And um, and yeah, most people want. I mean, it is terrible to say, but once you realise what a great drug alcohol is, you sort of think, right? I sort of want that to be there for the rest of my life. Yeah, but blokes of our vintage, I mean, you're younger than me, but I think what I've always sought to avoid, and it's part of this seeing both sides thing. But it was Frank Skinner who said this to me once, actually, and he was said he's ten years older than me. So, but he was just saying, and what I've always wanted to avoid is. It's been like most people who get to some point in their 40s and it's like they have decided what their opinion is on absolutely everything. Yeah. And no matter what, they're not going to change it. I mean, it could be they either like or don't like Indian food or it could be something political or it could be something about cars or something. You know, you're yeah. always going to be open-minded to change something even completely fundamental in your life. You know, it's just that, you know, that is part of that idea of, you know, not having a moderate opinion. You have a set opinion on something and you're going to stick with it no matter what because it is just less effort to stick with that opinion rather than applying yourself to to, to some thought about it, you know, to having a, having a think about it. And, oh, is that really right? That requires effort, you know. And I just think it's important we all keep sort of thinking and changing our minds and stuff. But a lot of people just aren't keen to change their minds on anything. I think that is that is a lovely point um, to end the podcast. Certainly, you know, two hundredth episode. I, I bet if I listen to the first three, I'm I've definitely got a lot less certainty than I had uh, on anything. And I just want to say, obviously, I would direct people to 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 buy the book. It's a great way to cover the subject. And Adrian Charles, thanks very much for appearing on what most people think. Thank you very much, mate. A real pleasure. So there it is, the 200th episode chat with Adrian Charles. And, oh, man, that was just everything I hoped it would be. It was what what most people think gold. You know, we're talking about motorways, service stations, sand. It had, you know, I mean, as you could probably tell, Adrian's a, a bit of a hero of mine uh, in broadcasting. So I wasn't too, I hope I wasn't too much of a... Uh, too much of a fanboy there, but it was great for him to, to give up his time uh, for the show and stuff like that. And do do check out that book. I wish we'd had more time to discuss it, but it's such just such a refreshingly sensible way to come at the idea of your relationship with drink. Uh, just one letter before we go, and this is from Emmy. So it's Jane. Uh, she basically says, uh, enjoyed the chat with James Haskell. And James reckoned he'd seen more penises than anybody else. It's well worth checking out that bit of the show. She can say, Amy can say without fear, 
of hindrance as a nurse of 34 years, I've defo seen more cock than James. Okay, we have a cock challenge coming in. Uh, when it comes to penis, uh, I can attest that the saying they're all about the same is absolutely not true. I must have seen every shape, size, colour, angle of dangle <laughs> and public topiary arrangement, how beautifully put, in the course of my career. And the size of the man is no gauge as to the size of the peen. I can tell you. What that means by that is she's seen some short guys with massive dicks and she's seen some tall guys with tiny dicks. I know how to talk women. Um, I would... I would say that I would imagine that you remember the memorable ones, though, Emmy. Surely, and this must have been a challenge for your fellow. Do you know what I mean? When you come home, when you come home one day <laughs> with a smirk on your face, you know, have you have you seen a big one today? Have you seen a big one? But of course, you know, they say that they say that you know, when nurses will say, "Oh, look, you know, you don't really think about it," but if you see an absolute belter, Jesus Christ! I mean, you at the very least flag it on the WhatsApp group. No photos though, because that would be wrong. Okay, uh, well, that's classic what most people think ended with something that felt like it was wrong, but not entirely sure uh, whether it was. And I just want to say thank you so much to everybody, uh, everybody that downloads the show. If you recommend it, you give it a review uh, on iTunes. It's it's one of my favourite things to do, partly because of the amount of fucking control I have over it. And and, and a special thank you to every single person uh, who, who contributes via the Patreon. It just enables me to kind of do my own thing and go, all right, Jeff, you ever want a fucking BAFTA, mate? This is what I think, as I think the same people that contribute to Patreon are probably now feeling a bit sickened by how corny I've gone with this. And that's the reason why you're perfect uh, listeners to this show. I hope you have a fantastic weekend. We'll be back next week with another brilliant guest. <laughs> <laughs>